Okay, so question. Uh, well, it's not or, really com or comment. I mean, it seems to me like in, for, in order for this kind of uh, technology to take off, you really, uh, a lot of engineering effort has to be spent on the running time environment, kind of like the JVM thing. JVM thing, where like years and years of engineering will get poured into that before it reaches like, uh, like uh, super uh, performance for like everyday use. Yep. And, and for this kind of thing, if you want to get rid of the low level CUDA type of uh, you know, buffer management and thing, you really have to have a very smart real time environment to, to manage all this. Uh, but that's like so much engineering that you can't have it today. And another thing is like, uh, I don't know like how how useful this is really for, for you know, for those kind of system programming or say for, for essentially non-numerical tasks, right? And a lot of these, <coughs> like a lot of work that uh, in the industry are non-numerical works. And if you can't target that kind of uh, segment, then the, uh, the, the demand for this kind of technology is not going to be high enough for, for enough engineering resource to be poured into the real-time environment. So, okay, so I'll push back on that point in a couple of ways. One is, um, I, I agree with you, especially in the short term, right? Uh, I mean, there's just no way. It's kind of like circa 1996, if you ran Sun's Java interpreter, it sucked. You know, it was horrible performance. And if you tried to build an application, I think Corel tried to port their whole office suite. And at the time, the performance was just horrendous. Um, so you're right, I think, about that, that it takes a long time and there are big bets being placed, right? Uh, it's not clear that Fortress is the right direction and yet a lot, lot of resources are being poured into that. Um, there are other things like X10 and, and other environments where that's happening. But, you know, one big difference between, say, 96 and so forth, when Nestle was there, when high-performance Fortran was coming around, is the audience has changed radically. It used to be Parallel computing was for scientists, people who were doing numeric computation. Today, it's really for Google, okay? Uh, and, you know, if you think the physicists here are doing interesting big computations, it's nothing compared to crawling the web and extracting in real time the information that you need to display the ad for the bazillions of queries that are going on. Okay, and um, in some ways, that's good because the problems can be redefined. We don't care actually that you track all the pages on the web. We can have some failures, we can have some outages. This, by the way, is something that neither one of these languages really deals with, is on a huge cluster, what happens when you have that machine die over there, right? And that's a big concern when you start scaling out. Um, but um, there are environments like MapReduce and Hadoop that really are trying to program in that, in, in that style. And, um, they're also doing different kinds of computation. They're, they're manipulating text or images or video as opposed to uh, astronomical data or doing physics simulations. I, I think one thing that will probably happen to mitigate some of this is the reality is scientific computing is mostly done by using libraries like BLAST or ATLAS that are very well tuned for the architecture. And most of what the scientific programmers are doing is understanding their algorithm and mapping it down to the libraries that they have for their architecture. And, um, but there is a limiting factor in if you have to write too much code, refactoring and trying a different algorithm can be hard.
prohibitively hard, and the algorithmic wins can be huge, right? Um, so a good example that's not in the parallel world but in the network protocol world is I remember uh, about 10 years ago, some guys were trying some very radical ideas about how to organize various protocol elements, and they were using very high-level languages to prototype things. And then they were by hand translating that code down to C and C++. And they were getting about a factor of 10 improvement in that translation. But they were able to see, because the code was just smaller and, and more elegant, they were able to see the structure there, and they did some major algorithmic reorganization. And they got an order, uh, uh, two orders of magnitude speed up out of this ML code. Then, of course, they could go back and translate that back into C and get another, not ten, a factor of 10, but a factor of 2. So, but at that point, they start to say, well, hey, is it worth maintaining both these, right? I mean, we got 100x speed up over the C code. Uh, and I think you're going to see that not necessarily in the domains where I need every bleeding cycle I can get, right, like a game, for instance. But I think in other domains where you have to factor in the time to write the code and do the algorithmic exploration coupled with the running time of the code, it'll be a win. And we're already seeing this. MapReduce, by the way, is the dumbest, simplest environment ever. But it gets used a lot by a lot of non-experts. And I think that's what's going to happen with a lot of these parallel languages. You guys who are willing to go in and dive in and understand the engineering details and spend the development time. You, by the way, you may be willing to do that this time for your application. But I, let me tell you, it gets old after you switch architectures enough. Uh, you're, you're willing to give up, say, a factor of two if you got that portability. Whether we can achieve that portability in any realistic way and only make it a factor of two, I think, is the big research question. Uh, it's not clear to me at all that we can do that. I think they need to coexist. Yeah. I, think, I think we need the, the low-level stuff like we're doing with CUDA, but we need the high-level languages. And to me, I'm seeing um, the dynamic that's going on is the transition of thinking from sequential to parallel. And I liken that to thinking in terms of sequential programming and object-oriented programming. And right now, they're coexisting. They both have their particular purpose. I think it does a world of good for someone to start with something like CUDA to understand some of the underlying issues going on even though they might not end up using it um, in the future and moving on to higher level languages. But it's, it's, I think it's a lot more, I appreciate a lot more looking at Nestle or looking at Fortress and seeing some of the things going on on the higher level and, and understanding what needs to take place underneath on the CUDA level. Um, yeah. I may you, not you know be, how far that, that gap is, right? Exactly, I may not be using CUDA in the future to actually do my coding, but I, I think even on the higher level, yep. um, it would it would definitely benefit. Yeah, I think exactly Sukyong's experience is what reality is, is, which is you take your Python script here, and you happen to program it with comprehensions, you use higher level collections, maybe it's fast enough, and that was good, good enough for you. Then you find out, oh, nope, tomorrow, uh, the number of connections I have is tripled, or the number of data elements has, has gone up by a factor of 100. I need to get more parallelism out of it. You, performance, analyze your code, you find the right algorithms first, that's usually the bigger problem, and then you come back and you want to be able to tune the code. Even at the high level, you have to have some mental model of what it's going to map down to and why, for example, oh, if I reorganize this data structure this way, I get a locality benefit, right, or if I, if I refactor things that way. 
I can tell you, though, that it, my own experience there is that it's not as simple a step as imperative C programming to object-oriented programming. Those are not incompatible in some way, whereas the sequential to parallel really demands that we throw away a whole lot of tools that I think are fairly natural. When I explain an algorithm to you, even, even that Aho hopcroft ullman algorithm, there are steps. Maybe the granularity of the steps has gone up by a huge thing, but it's still inherently got some sequential structure to it. And, um, and I think to get really good performance, there are radical shifts in the representations of data. For I, I mentioned, you know, the way that you represent a tree in Nestle is put all the elements at the leaves in a flat vector, have a second vector that basically records where the parens are if you were wrapping it around, wrapping parens around to make it look like an S expression a la Lisp. And then that completely changes the structure of your algorithm in terms of writing something that processes things in an in-order fashion, right? So if you change the data representations that radically, and you need to to get the performance, it's going to change the algorithms radically, whether that's just an issue of retraining another generation of programmers so that they're not stuck in sequential thinking, or whether that's inherently in conflict with the way we like to think about computation is, uh, I think, a, a big issue, uh, one that hasn't at all been resolved. Uh, keeping in mind, this problem has been around for 40 years. Parallelism is not new. And a lot of smart people have thought hard about this problem for 40 years. And if they weren't successful in the 80s, I claim one of the reasons was economically. It just wasn't important then, right? Because scientific computing, frankly, was not a big enough market to drive the development of the tools, the engineering costs that, that you're talking about. Now the market's huge, because even your cell phone, right, is a multi-core processor and demands, consumer-level devices demand parallel programming. So uh, the engineering wherewithal and the economic foundations are there to support the kind of engineering that we need. Not, not to get it out tomorrow, but I guarantee you within a few years, Fortress will have a high-performance compiler that does very well and is very competitive will still have a factor of two off of somebody writing at a, at a lower level. That was, true. that was true in the shift from people hacking operating systems and assembly code to C. Right? At some point, we were just willing to do it, and we gained the portability of being able to pick up Unix and move it from a PDP to you know, a VAX or something. Um, One thing that I'd like to add is that so Fortress has side effects, and for loops may run in parallel. So if you print something or update something during the lab, there is this, oh, they are not deterministic. So we have transactional memory. So if I, some of you may have heard of it. Transactional memory is kind of replacement for locking. So lock is quite low level programming. Yep. So it has live lock, dead lock, so many problems. It's very difficult for programmers to write correct programs using locks. And transactional memory is to say that from here to here, it's going to be atomic. Don't bother to look at my code. It's gonna be just done in atomic. So that's transactional memory. So we have uh, there are some a lot of research on in this transactional yeah. memory. Yeah, and recent um, report says that they had some experiments with some students, and they asked them to write some programs in logs and using logs and using transactional memory, and it turned out that programs written with transactional memory are more work. Yeah. Work? <laughs> and the other one's done. Here's a challenge for you. 
write a double-ended queue, a concurrent double-ended queue, all right, where you can insert or remove elements from either end concurrently, two threads. This, by the way, was a research problem that was only solved recently uh, using, uh, there's a paper in PodC three years ago on doing this in a high-performance way. And that's because it's very hard to write the code so that you don't get race conditions, you don't get deadlock, especially the deadlock situation, and you get concurrency. You write it using transactions, it's trivial. Okay, and there's overhead transactions. But hey, something as simple as a double-ended queue is hard to get right is a research paper? Okay, that tells you that that level of abstraction is something that's inherently difficult for us to deal with. Another thing I like about the transactional memory model as opposed to locking, and this, this is another big research area that I encourage you to go look at, is um, it composes. Okay, so one of the problems with locks is uh, if, if I'm a library and you lock a data structure and then you call in to me, maybe I try to lock that data structure as well. All right, if, I ha if I don't have recursive locks, then I'm immediately deadlocked. And furthermore, interfaces today, at least for type systems, do not capture the set of locks that I hold. So you all already have this issue of not being able to tell if you use somebody else's libraries not just race conditions, but deadlocks. It just doesn't scale with encapsulation and abstraction. Locking doesn't. It's one of the reasons that we run into bugs over and over again with this stuff. Transactions have the nice property that they nest. Okay, and so they, they allow for, they're compatible with abstraction. And we know we can't build big software without abstraction. So uh, that's, one, that's the key reason as a language guy that I think they're a good abstraction. But there's still a lot of hard engineering to make them run well. And we have open questions like, should the compiler and the runtime be handling the transactions? Should we have hardware trying to do it? Actually, I guarantee you the hardware is the wrong answer for always handling the transactions, but providing accelerated support for handling transactions. Because the biggest issue is I run optimistically both transactions in parallel. If there's no conflict, I win. Actually, you get more parallelism than you get with locks. If, I, if I'm wrong, though, right, I have to back up and undo one of the transactions. And how do you back up and undo? Well, there's two basic ways. One is to checkpoint the state before you enter the transaction. Very expensive. Another way is to record all the updates and the old values as you go along. And then when you abort, you undo them. So this is just like in databases, optimistic concurrency control. It's been very successful in databases. Uh, and there's a good reason to think that this kind of abstraction will be uh, useful, at least for lay programmers, in, uh, in uh, application design. That's, again, a control-centric kind of parallelism, a task-level parallelism, and doesn't address data parallelism, which is largely orthogonal. Brian. That's the kind of thing I was thinking about. The language you mentioned were only data parallel. Yeah. Um, are there any mixtures or, or things? Where I think people still want task parallelism. No, no, I, I would say both those languages actually have task parallelism heavily in them, although in, it's, it's implicit in Nestle. Uh, and you don't really see it, but that recursive structure there gives rise to easy task parallelism. Um, and in Fortress, it's even more explicit. Okay, it has both very nicely. Uh, one of the big challenges with task parallelism is granularity. Okay, so for example, if you have a pure functional language, every sub-expression can be evaluated in parallel. So if you take Haskell, you could just run every sub-expression in parallel. The problem is, um, the overhead of forking a thread, the space overhead of a thread, and so forth, is enough that you sit there and you say, oh, is it worth, worth doing that just to add three to four? 
right? Uh, and so you need to batch up into a big enough group uh, things. Often you don't know how big that grouping is until runtime. And uh, so, and furthermore, just doing the test to say, is this big enough or is it not big enough? That's overhead that you're introducing into the code, which if you just ran it without those tests, ran it sequentially, sometimes you beat the parallel code. Same thing with locks, right? You, if you have a unit processor and you're doing all this locking, <laughs> it's overhead. But you know, if you don't put the locking in there, then you can't pick up the code and run it on a multiprocessor. So th these are the challenges that engineers face in trying to design languages that insulate programmers from the tedium, frankly, of things that don't have anything to do with the code they want to write, but rather with the limitations of physics and hardware. That's, that's a huge challenge. It's not going to go away. They're not going to be easy, easy solutions, except for uh, limited classes of domains, like dense linear algebra. We got that solved. Uh, but for more interesting applications, uh, you know, I was working on a project this summer looking at machine learning. How do you take uh, disparate video streams along with uh, text dialogues automatically classify the images, do the face recognition, tag things, connect the social graph on these things, and maybe find out uh, this guy is a terrorist because he's connected to that guy and he was seen in this location with that guy at the same time. How do you do that in parallel? Some of the things, like the low-level signal processing, we can do that parallel. But those aren't the bottlenecks. The bottlenecks are in things like the machine learning algorithms, the hidden Markov models, uh, not in these higher level things. That's going to be a real challenge. So anyway, but hope, I, hope, I hope this does a couple of things for you. One is you should be very skeptical about any claims that we make <laughs> about these languages. Um, I think coming at it bottom up is really useful because you really know what's going on, at least for one architecture. right? Um, and another thing to think about is where is architecture going to go? So I mentioned scatter gather. I guarantee you, because the Craze did this a long time ago. By the way, if you want to watch how architecture is going to evolve, just go look and see what Cray did over the years. And you will see what's going to happen. Uh, that guy was incredibly brilliant. Um, but um, you, know, you watch that, and you can predict where the hardware is going to land. I can guarantee there'll be small, low power, deeply pipelined, very data parallel kinds of cores, uh, more like your GPU than not. Um, uh, Larrabee, by the way, is bullshit. So, um, <laughs> so that's the direction that things are going to go. And, uh, and um, so how do you design languages? How do you engineer them, the compilers and the runtime systems to deal with it? These are hard challenges. Biggest one in programming languages today. More comments? Um, There's more question. Uh, fairly early on, I, I'd asked about the similarity between Nestle and Python, and you said that the nested lists in Python are really, really inefficient, and compared to the way vectors are in Nestle, and I was just curious. If you I don't mean really, really inefficient. I mean for parallel algorithms, okay. that the representations that Python—I'm not exactly sure what Python how it represents yeah, them—but exactly. if it does the usual linked list thing, and it's a yeah, okay, if it's implemented as a vector, that's great. On the other hand, there's always the, you know, if I just want to add an element to the front of that vector, right, it's an order in operation. Same thing with Nestle. In contrast, for ML, it's an order one operation because I use a linked list. So there are always these trade-offs. It depends on what mix of operations you're doing, what representation you want to pick. 
The key thing is, rarely is list the right abstract data type. Higher level notions like hash tables, finite maps, sets, are usually what we have, and then we're mapping them down to concrete representations like vectors or uh, trees or uh, you know, other, other kinds of representations in memory. So um, there's a huge distinction between abstract data types and concrete ones, and programmers get those mixed up all the time. If you programmed in terms of ADTs, then you have the luxury of swapping out different implementations depending upon what the architecture is and what, what the compiler provides support for. Okay, so I'm getting the wrap-up signal, but I'll be happy to chat. So we'll suck you on. I think we'll be around after class if you want to talk some more. Thanks for having us.